Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling news in the seafood sector. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief of Interfish, joined today by John Fiorillo, Executive Editor, and John Evans, Correspondent. Hello, gentlemen. Let's start off with uh, a story that that, uh, that you were working on, John, and, and um, co-bylined together with uh, our colleague Dominic Welling in London as well. Um, among the challenges that have been facing the sector um, during the COVID-19 pandemic has been how to move goods from one place to another. Seafood is the most globally traded uh, food commodity, um, and much of how this industry operates relies on product going from one country to the next to be processed um, and, and then sent back to other countries. And there's been a series of issues with this, um, primarily related to China initially, um, that had to do with uh, with some of their um, stoppages over finding COVID on uh, on different types of food products. Um, Russia, uh, their Pollock industry is still suffering from this. Um, so in general, there's been um, significant disruptions. But you looked into it, so kind of tell us where where things stand right now. Uh, and when things will get back on track. Yeah, it first caught our attention about, uh, not a year ago, but sort of uh, after, the, after the onset of the pandemic, when um, shipping containers were just dislocated. They just weren't in the right place uh, in, in, in Asia, China. And that was because the, you know, the Chinese had to deal with the COVID <coughs> pandemic excuse me, first. And um, yes, yeah, so th- th- there was uh, there was people missing, absent at uh, ports, and and the like, as well as uh, as you mentioned, um, there was the slowness of getting uh, containers through ports um, for that reason as well. Uh, and and then as, as it went on, as, as you say, they um, then they started uh, putting in tighter checks, and then. Uh, as to the uh, as the Ecuadorians found of their cost, they found um, uh, traces of COVID nineteen on outer packaging. But if we if we move on a year, um, the the situation has turned on its head now. In that the containers are now dislocated um, in Europe and uh, in the in the in the Americas. So um, yes, yeah, so people, you know, there's been basically a shortage of. Um, containers, which has pushed up the price for everybody, including um, seafood processors, who you know a lot of companies send their stuff to China and other parts of Asia to process. And um, and what, one of the, the things that was mentioned to me was that because of people are being stuck at home um, and they, there's a, been a higher demand for consumer goods, particularly electronics. Um, and the so-called dry goods, as they call them, they've um, they've taken up a lot of space on on the container ships that there are. Another point is that a lot of the, uh, you know containers have come to the end of their life and haven't been replaced. So that's another reason there's, there's a shortage of containers. So uh, in in short, uh, the the costs have gone up uh, as much as four to five um, four five times. Yeah, I mean that was kind of the the big shocker. It was a, a source that had told you that you know rates have gone up uh, as high as four hundred percent, which is just kind of shocking. 
Um, tell us a little bit too, John, about blank sailing to explain that a little bit. Um, cause you, you, you mentioned that in the story. Um, some people may not be kind of familiar with that, uh, with that term, but, um, that's increased pretty significantly as well. Yeah, that's another, that's another um, part of the equation. Um, you know, blank or void sailing is a sailing that's been canceled by the carrier that might maybe because they didn't have enough um uh, uh they didn't have enough uh, um freight to fill it up or, or for for a number of reasons uh it, it could be thing it could be cancelled sorry and uh, you know it could, it could it could mean a vessel skipping one port in a chain or a string as it's called um and and frequently a string of, of ports is served by weekly by a carrier you know for example you might get uh, um a vessel going from Shanghai to Ningbo to Los Angeles to Oakland to Shanghai, um, moving in a circular direction, but always with the same schedule of ports. So, yes, I mean, if, if that chain breaks, that could be another problem with people who are used to using a particular chain to ship their goods. Right. And, you know, I'm curious to you mentioned, John, um, uh, Europe as well. Um, you're, you're our, our man, our person on, on Brexit for sure. How, how have the disruptions there, have they been affected at all? Um, or has, has port and shipping been affected at all by this? Or has that been primarily kind of, uh, UK to, to EU issues? Yes. I mean, that, um, it, from the point of view of Brexit, it, 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 you know, they're, they're two separate things really, uh, I, I think. I mean, processors will, you know, tell you that they, you know, they've had they've had problems getting, um, will get of uh, getting raw material in. But um, from the for the biggest problem since the start of the year has been the um, uh, in 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 between Britain and Europe has been the uh, you know the new paperwork, the uh, added bureaucracy, um, and the slowness of. I mean. I mean we're getting to the point where we, you know, salmon processes in 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 mer Europe's biggest processing hub, you know, are waiting two days for their, you know, for their orders to arrive. Whereas, it, you know, they may have arrived in 16 hours door to door before from from Scotland. So yeah. I mean, it's just interesting to see how these things have kind of compounded. So um, it sounds like they're they're running in parallel. But, you know, um, fact of the matter is, this is kind of one more issue in the logistics chain that has been complicating um, seafood trade. Uh, John, you wrote last week, uh, you were sitting in on the National Fisheries Institute conference, their, their global seafood marketing conference. Um, and one of the things they discussed was, was logistics and just how expensive that's become as well. It's kind of the hidden background to the seafood sector that um, isn't always uh, always looked at. Oftentimes consumers, right, are just looking at what the cost of fish is there in front of them. Um, and in the industry uh, as well, sometimes it's a factor that, um, that isn't, isn't uh, too well understood. But um cold storage rates uh are another issue correct that's right that's what's one of the things that uh, came up uh, frequently um during the, the conference and uh, cold storage space or lack of uh, uh, availability of space um you know is something the industry needs to address right now 
Right. And especially, you know, just to, with this time of year, um, things begin to, uh, things begin to ramp up in products. Obviously, uh, the holidays are behind us, um, at least the Western holidays, uh, with Christmas and, and New Year's, um, which is a big time for seafood. But we also have Lent. Now, a lot of the shipping that comes in uh, for Lent happens uh, well prior to when Lent actually uh, happens. So um, right now, uh, John Evans, you're in Brazil, a, a very, very uh, a predominantly Catholic country. Um, and so, uh, you have, uh, you, you see Lent celebrations, um, all around you, but in the U S what's interesting is, um, although there's, um, n- not near as many Catholics in the, in the U S by percentage, by any stretch of the imagination, Lent is still, um, it's still a really important part of the seafood sector and John Fiorillo Maybe you can tell us a bit first what Lent is for those that don't know and why seafood uh, revolves around it so much in the United States. Yeah, I mean, in simple terms, Lent is a 40-day preparation for Easter in which Catholics tend to... um, it's a solemn period, it, it, at least traditionally for Catholics. They tend to abstain from certain things. Of course, the meat on Friday um, thing, a lot of people know about. I'll touch on that in a second. But um, it starts on Ash Wednesday, which just occurred. And, um, yeah, it's it's just a period of reflection. Uh, you know, it reflects on you as a person and uh, life and death, it, it can be pretty solemn, but um, the more the more recent takes on Lent is it gets away from that a little bit and talks more about service to others and things like that. So it's, it's changed over the years, but um, where it intersects with seafood is, um, I think it was up until the late or mid sixties, you know, the Catholic uh, Catholic laws uh, forbid meat on Fridays. Um, and that's related to uh, Jesus being crucified, uh, his flesh being, you know, um, taken from the earth, so to speak. And so the idea was, you know, don't eat uh, flesh of animals on Friday. That that was kind of, that was the rule. And uh, that's eased quite a bit since then and isn't really the case anymore. But um, the leftover of that is that way back in the 60s, McDonald's, one of their franchisees, was tired of seeing the their meat sales plummet on Friday, their burger sales. So um, the filet of fish was invented to um, to take care of that. And well, it was really successful. And what you see today is is you know what it's become. I mean, if you look at any you know quick service seafood chain, um, just name it. They're coming out with a fish sandwich, um, in this case, usually Pollock most of the time these days, uh, to, to um, you know, to kind of mimic this idea of not eating um, uh, meat on Friday. So, yeah, that's, that's the way this Catholic was taught it anyway. So, <laughs> I mean, there may be variations, but, uh, you know, East Coast Catholic, I'm pretty much, uh, I'm pretty much got the, got it dialed in, I think. 
given that the Catholic population makes such a makes up such a small portion of the U.S. Uh, population, it's interesting that all of these other restaurants have this kind of um, this you know, you see this Me Too promotional launch, um, and it's almost like the seafood industry has created its own kind of holiday here and that there's a lot, a lot, a lot of attention um, with new product development and product launches and things put around such a small period of time. So and why, why do you think that is? I mean, it, it still persists. It's still going on yeah. today. Yeah. I mean, I've been asked this several times by people over the years and my answer is, these restaurants do it because it works and they wouldn't do it for any other reason. They're not doing it because they're devout Catholics or anything like that. This is just a custom that is developed, uh, uh, in, in our culture, at least in the U S and, um, it, it's outdated probably. And like you said, the, the uh, Catholic population isn't, uh, what it used to be. So, but yet these, uh, restaurants do it and they do it and you called it a holiday. I mean, I, I don't know Sorry. if call Sorry. Lent a holiday, <laughs> but that's okay. But you know, it is a 40 day period and a lot of fish sandwiches get sold in this 40 day period. So the, the easy answer is, and I think the correct answer is they do it because it gives them a chance to menu seafood in a limited time offering that is fairly lucrative for them. And it comes right after that rush of the uh, Christmas holiday and, and all that. So it, it kind of carries them through what would normally be probably a pretty slow period. The interesting thing to me is watching this year is, so last year, COVID 2020, Lent pretty much didn't happen. I mean, in the way it normally would, just because it came right, you know, it's right at the peak of this crazy thing. This year, obviously, the restaurants feel differently, at least the quick service ones, because uh, Long John Silver's, Wendy's, Bojangles, you just keep going. Uh, White Castle, they're all doing something uh, this year like they normally would do, uh, you know, pre-COVID. So uh, that's interesting. I think where there's a little disconnect this year is that restaurants that are out of that quick service um, um, sector, you know, the more full service, they usually do Lenten promotions that are, you know, a bit more beyond fish sandwiches and battered shrimp, you know, they'll do, you know, salmon and, and typical stuff, but you won't, you won't see much of that this year, obviously, because those restaurants are still um, struggling from uh, not being able to get people in to sit down and dine in a lot of places. So, but yeah, that's, that's the way it looks to me right now. Well, yeah, I, I find that uh, you mentioned that 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 QSR, the quick service restaurant uh, promotions, it feels I I could be wrong because we've gone through so many Lent promotions together after all these years, but it does seem like there's more uh, promotions at quick service restaurants. The other thing um, that I find interesting is uh, the amount of Pollock that's being uh, menued. The uh, the Genuine Alaska Pollock Producers Association um, sent out uh, some uh, information uh, today or yesterday, um, kind of highlighting all the different promotions that are happening uh, with Alaska Pollock. 
and uh, and there's a lot, and some of that may have to do with uh, with uh, pricing, the affordability of of Pollock versus say COD, um, uh, or maybe just straight availability. I don't I don't know um, what all of these uh, fast fast food restaurants were were serving prior, but I know that for example Wendy's, which is a big um, hamburger chain in the in the U.S., they've switched over uh, from COD to Pollock, but. Um, but but it just seems like there is, is a slew of uh, of quick service restaurants that have launched um, that have launched fish promotions this year, maybe more than in the past. Yeah, and I, I think you have to tip your hat to uh, the folks at at Gap um, because I think some of this is is their work. You know, their consistent push, their perseverance to get. Uh, Alaska Pollock on on menus and identified as Alaska Pollock on menus. So, and there's one other thing I was thinking uh, when we talked about doing this today. And during COVID, as everybody knows, retail sales of, of fish sticks and frozen uh, seafood, uh, battered seafood, soared. You know, and they're still doing well. I'm wondering what happens uh, now that consumers really like their fish sticks at home i'm wondering if they'll be more prone to go out and and buy some of these limited time um uh pollock you know sandwich offers that are going on at all the chains you just mentioned and more i just wonder if there's any interplay between those two i don't i don't know and i don't know how you would measure it but maybe the folks at gap are watching that and and will uh will provide some data i don't know Hmm. Yeah, maybe people get a taste for frozen breaded fish, and uh, and their their journey, their culinary journey continues. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> um, John Evans, um, in Brazil, um, tell us about Lent there. That's also traditionally, uh, um, as as everywhere else, a, a time to eat more seafood. Is it bacalao that's uh, that's mainly um, that's mainly used during the Lenten period? Yeah, I mean bacalhau and uh, and sort of uh, uh, sort of a cheaper alternatives as well. Um, it's forty five days before uh, Easter uh, when Carnival is, which is just this week, but obviously cancelled because of the uh, the COVID thing. Uh, what was indicated to me before Christmas when I was looking into. Um, what what the Christmas demand would be like uh, and how orders would be like is that they because of the problems last year uh, and cancelled orders they built up inventories so um, they were when I spoke to them I think it was in November they were I'm about to call them again and find out what's happening for Lent but uh, they were saying that they were expecting a strong Lent this time uh, uh, around so we're um, you know they've already got the um, the stock at hand, if you like, uh, a lot of that um, cod as well, particularly the Norwegian, is uh, is salted and taken off the shelves. Um, interestingly, it sort of forms a centerpiece of a of a, of a main Brazilian dish uh, on holidays, and they have to de uh, salt it about three or four days before. So that that all tallies into the um, to the buying process because you have to buy it, you know, four or five days before. Um, to make sure you can desalt it, so yeah, you can't just go and buy it at the last minute. 
Yeah, and it does seem, you know, that, um, well, all of us are about ready <laughs> to, we're all going stir crazy wanting to, to get out and, uh, and celebrate and, and do things. Um, but it, it does seem like the holidays, although people are not going to be getting together as much, it does seem like there, there is some maintenance of those, uh, of those traditions. And I think back to, um, to November and Thanksgiving in the U S which is such a big, uh, it is the time for Turkey. Um, that was what, uh, what people had, had, uh, had said, analysts of that sector and, and, um, sort of mainstream publications had said, is that people still went out and and bought their turkeys, still had their celebrations, um, you know? So so um, you know, even with all of this, it seems like uh, sales for um, kind of traditional holiday uh, and and, uh, and and observance uh, events that that those meals and uh, those traditional foods tend to be um, still consumed. So just to, to sort of uh, end us off here a little bit, I, I wanted to turn towards a land-based salmon farming again, which has sucked a lot of oxygen out of the, the room in 2020 with companies going public. Um, John, you just recently wrote a, an article about this. There's, there's likely more on the way. Um, but just this week, our colleague uh, Andres Ferruset in Norway uh, interviewed Ivan Vindheim. He's the CEO of, of movie. And, um, you know, for the first time I would say ever, uh, movies, um, kind of take on it was a little bit, it, it was more hedged. Um, and he essentially said, Hey, we're open to anything that can be profitable. And I think that, um, you know, as part of that interview, I think there was also some some telegraphing messages to the Norwegian government about uh, about taxation and about um, costs uh, and maybe saying, hey, look, uh, we can we can produce fish in other areas if we can't afford to do it in, in Norway. So I think there was some of that in, in the messaging. However, um, you know, that's quite a shift from where the company has kind of publicly been on this sector. Um, I think as far back as 2015, um, there was, uh, there was, a, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of excitement kind of built by the NGOs around it, but certainly there was not the kind of enthusiasm or momentum that it has now. Um, but, uh, but at that time, the Marine Harvest CEO, Alf, uh, Alf Helga Orskog, uh, he had likened it to growing pigs in the sea. Uh, when somebody mentioned growing salmon on land, um, which is just a lovely image, I think, regardless of, of whether or not it's uh, whether or not land-based salmon farming actually works, um, but but it was interesting and kind of shows I think that um, these major companies are starting to sit up and take notice and watch closely what is happening. There's still no success story to scale. Uh, period of of full grow out uh, salmon of any kind of consistent scale production. Um, I think you know the harvest of um, Atlantic sapphire uh, that they did in the in last quarter or uh, at the end of the last half of of uh, 2020. Uh, I think the harvest was uh, the amount that is is uh, harvested from a, a net pen a standard net pen in like three hours. So, you know, so it just tells you that um, the volumes are very, very low. 
but it does seem a bit that this is sort of a, a sign of things uh, changing and maturing. So I'm curious if either one of you uh, see it in that way, and whether or not you see a future where movie uh, where a movie is uh, doing land based salmon farming. Um, John Fiorillo, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I don't see how they can ignore it. Uh, I think we talked about this, uh, you know, a few podcasts back. I just don't see how they can sit there and see uh, all this investment coming, all all this energy, despite the fact, like you just mentioned, that nothing's been proven at scale yet. Um, there are indications that this is this is gonna uh, p- potentially work well. So, I think. You know, part of it is they're just sitting there now going, well, we, you know, hey, we were the biggest in the world. We can't just sit on the sidelines and and not at least uh, consider this. I also think, to your point, I think they were shooting some warning shots over the bow to the Norwegian government, which is looking to increase taxes on, on the sector. And, um, you know, this is clearly a message to, to let them know that that wasn't great, a great idea. Also, to harken back to John's uh, shipping article, I think what COVID has done for a lot of these companies is really shown them how vulnerable they are to shipping and transportation logistics and how expensive it is. And, you know, I mean, it would must be giving them pause and to think, well, what if we did have the a farm, a land-based farm that could produce quite a bit and Boston or, you know, somewhere in Asia or whatever, um, some big market of theirs, you know, that that's probably part of it as well. So, yeah, I, I just don't see how they can sit there and not consider this, you know, and Norway, you know, they, they're, they're the top dog in salmon farming and they don't want to lose that. So, uh, it's an interesting moment for for these companies, I think, and th- and this story kind of reveals that. You know, one of the uh, one of the signs I think of the maturity, or at least the um, the a sign that uh, land based salmon farming has kind of arrived, was a story that that you did, John Evans, on Pure Salmon, who's um, uh, looking to build a, a an operation. Well, they're looking to build several operations, but among them is an operation in France. And, you know, the NGO community has, from the beginning, sort of been fueling the land-based fire, I guess, if you could call that. Now, smolt production has been happening for forever. Uh, RAS, uh, recirculating aquaculture systems for smolt production, has been going on for a long, long time. Companies have been growing larger and larger smolt, so... When we talk about land-based salmon farming, it's important to note that it's not straight out of the blue, nor is it incredibly difficult for companies like Movie to move forward and take that next step and grow fish to full grow it. It's a matter of profitability. Anyway, um, there was primarily the NGOs that were pushing it, uh, as I mentioned about um, you know kind of the the efforts in raising that issue you know six six or seven years ago. But now I think we're seeing something slightly different. Although there's support for land-based salmon farming, um, now I think there's going to be scrutiny about land-based salmon farming for uh, for its agricultural practices, which is part of the evolution of any kind of 
industry or any kind of food production in particular. But John, what what were the the key points of opposition to Pure Salmon's operation by this uh, French environmental magazine? They mainly centered on um, uh, the critique of stocking densities in in recirculating aquaculture systems, RAS technology tanks, um, where they they say you know the the the, the densities are much greater than in a um, sea-bound, ocean-bound um, pen, really. Um, and they also raised the question of um, ethics, highlighting Atlantic Sapphire, their Blue House, house uh, project in Miami last year, when they, uh, they had to slaughter hundreds of thousands of fish when things went wrong, that kind of thing. Um, it sort of equates to, as you mentioned, similar things in other areas of, of uh, food production, you know, um, concern about uh, battery hen farming and, uh, you know, how, uh, how, ca- how cattle are treated, that kind of thing. You know, land-based agriculture has, um, rightly so, taken a lot of heat, and I think that's uh, for, for its uh, CO, uh, CO2 emissions. Um, and that's one of the things that the salmon farming conventional salmon farming sector is pointed to uh, when they when they talk about their sustainability. It's one thing that um, some of these um, some of these groups that um, that evaluate food production on their uh, on sustainability have actually given really high marks to to salmon farming for. That's why you've seen movie and Baca Frost and Leroy and others at the top of some of these um, rankings is because of the carbon uh, footprint of land-based aquaculture. But that is something that um, that I think the land-based salmon farming sector will have to reckon with. Yes, you don't have to fly your product to market. Um, but, you know, the industry's not going to get a pass. It's just not going to happen. Um, John Fiorillo, I'm, I'm curious. We've had many conversations about the NGO community um going a little bit quiet since the money has started flowing into land-based salmon farming. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> we can we can document for hours their um, their dislike, I guess you would say, of uh, traditional net pen salmon farming and all the questions that have been raised about that by green groups. But, um, and, you know, they... they at first, it seemed like they would jump right aboard land base because it solved a lot of the complaints that they had about NetPen. But you're not seeing that. You're really not seeing them defend it in any way. For example, in Maine, when when um, you know the far, uh, potential farms up there are attacked by local local groups who basically just don't want that near them. That you don't see, really see any NGOs come out and uh, defend uh, land-based salmon farming. So it confuses me a little bit as to where they are in this whole development, but they certainly don't seem to be running to the aid of of, uh, of the land-based guys. Yeah, well, that that's, uh, as I said, I think the industry can take that as a sign that they've arrived when they actually have critics. Uh, that's, a, that's a good sign for the evolution of any industry, probably. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Just a couple of quick notes. Uh, next week, next Tuesday, February 23rd, 
uh, is our shrimp forum, and that will be held at 8 a.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Uh, GMT, uh, and 9 p.m. Singapore time. Uh, it is going to be a fantastic event. It is moderated by uh, editor Rachel Mutter. Uh, she will be joined uh, by Thai Union, Rabobank, uh, the Ecuadorian Shrimp Association, Commonwealth, Brazil's largest shrimp supplier, and more. So uh, you're not going to want to miss it. You can go to intrafishevents.com and sign up there for that free webinar. Uh, in addition, uh, you can go to intrafish.com, of course, 24-7. We have reporters all around the world, and, uh, and they're keeping tabs on not just shrimp, but salmon, whitefish, uh, consumer trends, uh, trade, you name it. All right, we'll speak to you next time. Thanks again, John and John. <laughs>